Hey, good morning. Scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Thanks, Eric. It's so good to be with you all this morning. And uh, as already mentioned by Meredith, which she's probably devastated on how all that went, but um, <laughs> she mentioned that we're, uh, we're starting a new series called To What End? To What End? And uh, this morning, the, the message is entitled Implications. And um, as we start this new series, To What End? It will actually take us through the end of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've been with us since we launched in September, with the exception of a slight uh, break for Advent, uh, then you've been with us through the entire journey of 1 Corinthians in several different um, series along the way. But we'll be able to move through to the end and complete the book uh, in a couple of weeks here, actually in five weeks. And so the letter was written uh, by the Apostle Paul. So you might hear me refer or make reference to the Apostle Paul or Paul at some point. That's who I'm talking about. Uh, He helped establish the church in Corinth. And uh, this is a letter that he is writing back to them. And so that's why I'll make reference to him uh, from time to time. As I was considering uh, the the message this week, there was an experience that came to mind. Uh, I believe I shared part of it at some point, uh, maybe in pre-launch in the early services. But I, um, before we moved from uh, the Syracuse area, we moved from Syracuse area to come out here and start up the church. Uh, We were getting ready, doing some work on the house. And uh, I'm a pretty handy guy for the most part. And so uh, I was wiring something. And I was working on wiring a, uh, a three-way light switch. And so it was one of those things that although I knew how to do it, it wasn't working. It was electricity's fault, not mine. Uh, and uh, so we had this, uh, this kind of drop ceiling that would come down that ultimately I ended up eliminating and sheetrocking over. But for the time, it was kind of an attic ladder. And so I'd flip the switch and run up the uh, stairwell and, and look at the the lighting up there and trying to figure out what in the world I was wiring improperly. Don't worry, an electrician came and looked it over. It's fine. Nothing burned down. Um, but I, I was, uh, was kind of walking down, going up, walking down, and you kind of get into this rhythm if you've ever been there where you're just kind of going through the motions, you're wiring something, you go up, and all of a sudden I forgot that we lived in a ranch. And so as you go up these stairs, I'm six foot three. And so as I go up, I'm ducking every time, ducking every time. And then one time you run up the stairs, turn around, I was like, Boom, like just creased my head. It happens to me a lot, unfortunately. But I get popped right in the, in the forehead. And uh, 
kind of dazed for a second, and all of a sudden my knees kind of buckle. If you've ever been in that that moment where you're like, you think you just hit your head, and then you realize like, oh no, this was more than just a, a head hit. Like I might be falling now, and so I'm kind of dazed. And in a moment of kind of uh, being thrown off, I look down and I'm looking at the rafters, and they're all running this way. And so as they're running this way, there's insulation everywhere up there. And so I look as, as a, a piece of wood, a two by eight, is running underneath the insulation. For some of you, some of you are like, rafters, what are you talking about? So basically, here's the deal. I see two pieces of wood going this way, and they go under insulation. And so I'm kind of dazed. And, and so I, with all certainty, following that two by eight, I step thinking I'm going to step right on that and kind of you know, regain myself, get my balance instead of falling down the opening I walked up. And so I step with complete confidence that this thing has me. Some of you realize that this story doesn't make any sense unless something has gone awry. And so with complete confidence, all 200 pounds of myself step with certainty where I believe there is a rafter and there is no rafter. You see, the room that I'm in used to be a garage before it had been enclosed. And so the existing part of the house actually starts to run this way. And so there's this spot I didn't notice under the insulation that actually causes the rafters to run the opposite way in that section. So I step with all certainty where I believe there to be a piece of wood and there is nothing but sheetrock. And so my foot goes right through that puppy. And as it goes through, I start falling forward and I reach out in desperation to try to catch myself. And my hands hit the two by eights that are there going the wrong way. And they start sliding along there, you know, splinters and all that schmazola, you know, it was nice. And so I'm just trying to stop myself because I'm just thinking I'm about to fold up and fall right through there. I'm going to fall and just die in the kitchen right in front of my family. You know, like, boom, like, like, wow, dad didn't make it, but the lights work. So uh, I, I literally am just grinding myself to a halt and I stop my body just in time to not fall through. But I do take a two by eight right to the upper inner right thigh with full velocity. I did have two children after that, just clarifying. <laughs> One before, two after, so I was good, but it was close. And um, some of you will have to ask your parents what I'm talking about. Um, but my foot went through uh, what was the kitchen and... I am sitting there with my foot dangling down and my wife was cooking dinner in the kitchen. And so I see her like run over and she looks up and then I just hear laughter. <laughs> Amazing laughter, just absolute laughter as my foot is dangling out of the ceiling. And then she kind of composed herself. She goes, are you okay? Like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. And so I pulled my foot up and ended up having to patch a hole. And of course, like with everything else, the job got a little more complicated than anticipated. The point is this, and the reason I share the story is because in moments, whether we're dazed or whether we're thinking clearly, we make decisions with complete certainty. With absolute certainty, we place our trust in things, we placed our hope in things, and we step with confidence. And sometimes we fall right through what we thought we were so certain of. So the question I want you to consider as we go through this morning's message is why do we sometimes feel hopeless? And at face value, you might say, what does hopelessness have to do with falling through the ceiling of your kitchen? 
It has to do with this. I want to submit to you this morning that the answer to the question lies in what we put our hope in, what it is that we put our confidence in. You see, as humans, whether we're Christian or not, and I realize that the room is mixed of both Christ followers and people that are skeptics and everywhere in between. So often we put our hope in what we see, what we feel, what we touch, what we believe we're certain of. And so we make definitive decisions based on what it is that we believe we know. And sometimes we're wrong, right? Sometimes we step with complete confidence only to go crashing through. We look at what we can see and touch and feel and we make decisions accordingly. In fact, we have expectations accordingly. I'm certain of this. It's going to work out this way. And so what is it that we have hope in? Because what it is that we have hope in is often why we sometimes feel hopeless. Maybe this morning you have your hope in good grades, whether you're in college or in school in some way. And the reason why your hope is in good grades is because it will lead to the future you believe you want. And so then you get a bad grade and you feel hopeless because now the future that you thought you could have is up for grabs. The college that you believed made sense would give you the life that you want is now feeling hopeless. Maybe you have hope in a relationship this morning. You've put all your eggs in that basket. And the reason why you're so desperately pursuing a relationship is because of the future you think you want. And then the relationship fails. And all of a sudden you're hopeless. It all feels like it's coming unraveled. What it is that you thought you were certain of, what it is that you were sure of, what it is that you moved with confidence in, now comes crashing down. The job that you think you want because of the future that you want. Then you lose the job. The job's not panning out to be quite as awesome as you thought it would be. So you feel hopeless. You see, we could put anything in the front end and say it's this, whether it's stuff or people or prestige or respect or whatever it might be because of the future that you believe you want And then when it comes to be a little bit different than you anticipated, how quickly we feel hopeless. But more troubling than even that reality, more troubling than the reality of not getting what it is that you're pursuing, is when you put your hope in something and you get the future you thought you wanted. But it doesn't fulfill you. That's devastating. We're like, yeah, I have all the money. I have all the money. I hit all my goals. I got all the stuff I wanted. But I still feel empty. I still feel hopeless. I, I got the job I wanted. I got the grades I wanted. I went to the college I wanted. People are so impressed, and yet I'm hopeless. I feel hopeless. We hope in a lot of things. To what end? To what end? We place our hope in so many things. To what end? Because if everything that we're pursuing will at some point not quite be what it is that we want it to be and that leads to hopelessness 
or if what it is that we do believe we want, we get, and that somehow leads to hopelessness, then I'm here to tell you this morning, hopelessness is your destiny. <laughs> Thank you for coming to Centerway. God bless. Make sure you give. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Now, that's the tension we live in, right? It's like we so often feel hopeless because it seems like a lose-lose world we live in. Like we get what we want and it doesn't fulfill us. We turn away from things and it doesn't fulfill us. It's like, what are we supposed to do? This pursuit is what Paul is addressing in this morning's text. The section of scripture is the climax of 1 Corinthians, and it's arguably one of the most critical passages in all of Paul's letters because he's clarifying what the gospel is. It's a rich theological text revealing what the gospel is and how it should impact every area of their lives as Corinthians and our lives today. 15 verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. The gospel I preached. He said, I preached. And now, if you've been following with us uh, for any amount of time, you can obviously go back. But earlier on in 1 Corinthians, he actually talks about what it is he preached. He says, listen, I preached only Christ. Is one of the things that Paul unapologetically says, I only preached Christ and him crucified. And so earlier in the text, he's saying Christ. And so what we can realize from this moment and this verse is that if all he's ever preached is Christ, then the gospel is Christ. To be gospel-centered is to be Christ-centered. John Stott, a theologian and commentator, he says this, he says, the gospel isn't preached if Christ is not preached. I love that especially in today's day and age where there can be eloquent communicators speaking about a lot of uh, life change and a lot of uh, transforming your, uh, your uh, behavior and modifying your behavior. And at the end of the day, the gospel isn't preached if Christ is not preached. And at Centerway, we're committed to this. In fact, our logo, um, I asked that they would project it. If you look at the logo for a second, it embodies this commitment I won't go into the whole explanation, but in the center, you'll see an X. And um, to, the, to the left, there you'll see a, uh, a lesser than sign, I guess, moving towards something. So something that's moving towards. And so the, the what's that? Greater than? Did I mix it up? Oh, it's a movement. Of, it's a forward movement of spirit-led that we're, we believe we're spirit-led into gospel-centered. And the outflow of that is disciple-making. And so our logo embodies our strategy and the center is Christ-centered. It's gospel-centered. So we believe that everything we do should be gospel-centered. The X stands for Chi, which is the Greek letter for Christ. And so in the center of our logo, everything that we are about is the truth of the gospel. That's what it's about. It's about Jesus, unapologetically. What makes Christianity distinct from all other religions is that all other religions are focused on teachers. And before you believe that I'm gonna kind of just bowl over other religions, it's not that I'm doing that. I'm, I'm making an argument that anyone from another religion would agree with is that their basis of belief is upon a teacher. And Christianity is focused on a teacher who is also a savior. So here's the difference. Teachers tell you what must be done. 
Teachers tell you what must be done. But listen, saviors do what must be done. And so it's one thing to say, listen, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And, and it is inspiring to be a better person and to, uh, to live your life with kindness and generosity and all of the things that a lot of different religions teach out there. But at the end of the day, it's completely contingent upon your own capacity to monitor and control your own behavior. And that never pans out well. Otherwise, there wouldn't be war. There wouldn't be argument. There wouldn't be fighting. Because at the end of the day, in and of ourselves, we're desperately wicked. But Christ was not only a teacher. He was a teacher who was a savior. He said, I'm going to tell you what must be done. I'm going to let you know you'll never do it. And then I'm going to do it for you. That's the gospel. Verse 3 it says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures, there's, there's endless, uh, there's not endless, but there are several uh, prophecies. Isaiah prophesied about the coming Christ some 800 years prior. And so in accordance, he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures of the Old Testament. This was spoken about, and Christ embodies it. And so what we see here is that Christ died for our sins. Our number one issue is sin. That's not rocket science, right? But here's the deal. I think to the world around us, and even maybe to some of us in this room, we get caught up in the issues and uh, the difficulty of the world we live in, and we turn the struggle into something that's far more surfacey than what the issue really is. The issue is sin. The issue of any hot topic in society today comes back to sin. It's a sin issue. It's not a personality issue. It's not a, it's not a racism issue. It's not a uh, socioeconomical issue. It's a sin issue because all of those things come down to this sin problem. The problems of the world are sin issues. And that's not an oversimplification because it's a difficult reality. If you're not willing to walk in the freedom given by a savior, in this section, um, I want to focus in for just a second. It says that Christ died for our sins. For our sins. For, um, in this section, um, for is actually kind of a complicated word uh, in Greek, but also even in the English language, if you think about uh, for someone or for, you can use for so many different ways. But in Greek, this word in particular means on behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute. So literally, Christ died as a substitute in place of, on behalf of us, because of our sin. Jesus took our place on the cross, and we, if we declare him to be Lord and leader of our lives, then we get the place that he deserves. I'm not sure where I heard this, but it seems too succinct for me to have come up with. <laughs> and so as I was preparing the message, I just thought, you know, I just need to give credit to someone else. So I'm not sure who actually said this. I don't think it was me. Um, but it's this. I, I think it summarizes um, something 
rather profound. It says, sin is putting yourself where God belongs. And salvation is, putting, is God putting himself where you belong. I'll say that one more time. Sin is putting yourself where God belongs, right? I'm the Lord and leader of my life. God belongs there, but I'm gonna put myself, that's sin. Salvation is God putting himself where you belong. He died the death that we deserve. The sin of our lives deserves death. The wickedness and the depravity of our own heart, it, it has to culminate in death. It's punishable by death. And yet Jesus went to the cross and died the death that we deserve. As the Lord and leader of our own lives, we put our hopes in lesser things. We step with certainty, with a whole lot of knowledge. And we have a lot of uh, intellect. I think it's probably part of our problem. I know it was part of the problem with the church in Corinth. They were so smart. So smart. Too smart for their own good. You see, because they put all of their energy and all of their trust and all of their hope and their intellect and they made definitive decisions that were disastrous over and over again. And it sounds like the legacy of a lot of our lives, quite honestly. I'm sure of this. Until I'm not. We simply aren't fulfilled in the lesser things. It's simple and yet complex because we continually fall victim to our own unmet expectations, right? If you're married in the room, just an expectation that things will be different, that really what you need is just to get away. If you just get away with one another, then certainly you'll start to see eye to eye, um, except then you don't. <laughs> or, or, hey, you know what? What it is is if we could just put our, our hope and our trust in that friend that's never let us down until they let us down. The, uh, the, the relationship, whether it's a classmate or a friend, a family member, time and time again, they prove to simply be human. Or the purchases that we make, the way we try to self-soothe, whether it's something that we pamper ourselves with a meal or a drink or whatever it might be, and what we're really trying to do is find some semblance of hope in a world that feels hopeless, and we're running after something that ultimately never fulfills us. So when we come to the end of it, we're like, to what end? This section, this little grouping of words, that Christ died for our sins. Paul could have said for your sins, right? We're talking about the apostle Paul, for goodness sake. He unapologetically identifies himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means, I mean, he was as well-behaved as, as you could be. And so here he is, this well-behaved person from the earliest of days, living the life according to all the rules. He's the best rule follower there is. And he's saying, you know what? It's our sins. I deserve death too. I'm the least of the apostles. We're all lost in different ways. We're all sinners in need of grace. The answer is, is hope in Christ, to place our hope in Christ. And yet that sounds like, how do you put your handles on that, right? Because it seems like something, it seems like a spiritual jargon just kind of rolls off the lips. Hey, put your hope in Christ, okay? God bless, all right, okay, take care. You know, you're like, what? I don't, 
What do you mean? Put our hopes in, in Christ. I, I can't see that. I can't touch it. I can't feel it. You see, because as humans, we're destined to what we can see and touch and feel. And so we put our hope in relationships and in stuff and we feel hopeless. So how can we place our hope in Christ? We have to come to a head realization a knowledge awareness of what it is that Christ has actually done so that it can transform our hearts. You see, because he paid our debt. He paid our debt. In Corinth, and even today, there's this uh, phrase when someone is kind of released from prison and people are frustrated about it or whatever, they say, they paid their debt to society, right? You hear that, like, oh, they paid their debt to society. Or someone will say, hey, I paid my debt to society. I, I get it. I did wrong and I made it right. I paid the debt. Here's the simple truth. Someone remains in prison until their debt is paid, unless they try to escape, in which case they come back and pay a little more debt. <laughs> that's, that's the reality is you stay until the debt is paid. Their freedom is proof that their debt has been paid. So listen, Jesus raising from the dead is proof that your debt and my debt has been paid. If he went into the ground and remained dead, then our debt may still be up for grabs. And so there's this reality of the tension, I guess, automatically is, did he really raise from the dead? hear that a lot in society and we celebrate Easter and we talk about the resurrection, but the church in Corinth is, is struggling with the implications of the truth of the resurrection. It's what Paul is addressing and it's something that we need to address, I would argue, every day of our lives. And this is why uh, verse six says this, it says, when he appeared to more, sorry, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. I love it. I love that Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians and he's like, hey, and he actually goes through a list when you, read, when you heard the whole text being read. He goes through a list of different people that Christ appeared to after his death. It's a society that it, things are confirmed by eyewitness account. And so certain number of people are required and in that society, women didn't count towards identification of a truth or an eyewitness. And so Paul goes through this amazing list. And I think it's incredible that Jesus actually reveals uh, his resurrection, that an angel first speaks about his resurrection to women at the tomb. I love it. I love that over and over and over again, we try to create this hierarchy in society and all along the while, it's the root of sin because it's Jesus that says, no, you're all my children. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman or what color you are or where it is that you originate from. I died for you. You're my child. I love it. And Paul is saying, hey, just so you know, there's over 500 and they're still alive. Go look them up. Like, <laughs> I love it. It's so amazing that we have this picture of a, of a text that was written somewhere around 20 years after Jesus' death. And, and Paul is saying, some of these people are alive. Go, go meet them. Go talk to them. Ask them. Challenge them. And so in today's society, we think, ah, oh, man, I, you know what? If I could have done that, if I could have talked to somebody, then I'd be able to tell if they were making it up. 
you know, or whatever. Like, did Jesus really rise? And are we really sure? And can we be certain? And honestly, I think one of the best, most compelling summations I ever heard was actually by Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a, a member of the Watergate scandal who ultimately went to prison and then eventually became a tremendous evangelist, uh, leading endless people to the Lord. He has this quote that I want to read to you. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They wouldn't have endured that if it wasn't true. Some of you are like, well, I don't know. Then he goes on. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. They couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years and ultimately cost their lives? Absolutely impossible. It's incredible. It's just simple logic. Like, all the, I could come up here and if given enough time, we could talk through the historical facts and all of the pieces that, that support the resurrection. But at the end of the day, just from an intellectual standpoint to say, yeah, is it even possible for that much of an elaborate lie? And, and he's talking about 12 men, but Paul is talking about, hey, it goes beyond the apostles. There were over 500. They're still alive. Go talk to them. The reason why this is critical is because of something that, that Tim Keller wrote in his book that I think says it better than me. In a book he wrote called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. If you've never read the book, I encourage you to read it, especially if you're a skeptic in the room. He says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. We want to pick and choose things out of scripture because of the way that it makes us feel, because of the way that it convicts us, because of the way that it makes us feel uncomfortable. But what he argues and what I'm arguing this morning is that, listen, if Jesus raised from the dead then there are implications in every one of our lives. And it's not for the moment of salvation because the gospel doesn't simply win us, it grows us. Every day, day in and day out, if you can put the gospel in the center of your life, it rearranges the way you view every relationship, everything you run after, everything you put certainty in, every step that you take with certainty. You see, the resurrection is the linchpin. Verse 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. We must understand our depravity in order to understand the grace that has been awarded us. All too often in our society, we talk about terrible things that happen and we go, oh, I can't believe that. Look at what they did. Oh my goodness, oh, that's terrible. And what we really are trying to do is we're trying to put distance between us and depravity. Because we say, oh, I would never 
do that. Oh my goodness. We put some type of hierarchy to the, to the sin nature of our lives. And instead, we have to lean into the fact that we are all broken in need of a savior. Only then can we put our hope in Christ who reveals the future that we didn't even know we were called to. So it's not a pursuit of some better life. It's a surrender of our expectations, of our thoughts, of what it looks like for us to be the Lord and leader of our lives. And saying, okay, God, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? It's only then that we can take God risks. It's only then that we can, that we can look at the stuff and say, let's, uh, let's sell it all. What do you mean? Let's sell it all because God's calling us to that. But we worked so hard to gather all that. No, let's sell it all. Why? Because it doesn't matter. In light of what God is calling us to, it doesn't matter. But if you're living your life, <laughs> if you're putting your hope in that, if you're putting hope in the stuff, if you're putting hope in the relationship, if you're putting hope in whatever it might be, then you hold on to it white-knuckled. Oh, you make decisions. You make decisions that reveal your own depravity. Because, oh, I, I need this. Why? Because I earned it, because I worked hard, because this is my favorite, it's God's blessing. What in the, what? What is happening? Like, so you're holding white knuckled onto a blessing of God as an excuse to avoid the leading of God? Oh my gosh. And listen, you're in good company because we're all, we are all guilty of that. We are all guilty of wanting to ascend to being the Lord and leader of our own lives. And if you don't think you have a compulsion towards that, then you have a different issue called religion and it's rooted in your heart and life and you think you're separate from the depravity of humanity and I want to tell you one day you will be but not today sanctification is an ongoing process it's immediate at the moment of salvation but it's an ongoing process of allowing the truth of the gospel to transform our every day to reroute and reorder our priorities how is it that we're going to spend our money how is it that we're going to live our lives what relationships are we pursuing for the purpose of influence not because we're playing some manipulative game but because we're being led by the spirit of god you see when we hold loosely to the things in this world and we allow the truth of the gospel to inform the decisions that we make and the way we live our lives, we can walk in joy because our hope is not rooted in our circumstances or our situations. It's in the unwavering truth of the gospel. So then we're faced with a question. And the question is this, as we leave this place and and we wrestle with the implications and the application to our lives. The question is, what is Jesus asking me to do in light of the grace he awards me? It's a difficult question. And the reason why it's a difficult question is because our hearts move towards work righteousness. And what I mean by works righteousness, not to throw out an SAT word or whatever, but what I mean by that is we start to go, yes. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pull up my big boy pants and I'm going to be a better Christian today. I'm telling you what, you know, the resurrection does transform everything. You know what? Sell it all. <laughs> You're like, whoa. This isn't, 
What I mean and what we mean as a preaching team when we talk about what is Jesus asking me to do in light of the grace that he awards me is it's one thing to be transformed by the truth of the gospel ourselves. But if there is no overflow of that, if there is no outward motion, then what are we doing? There has to be implications for the way that we've been transformed by the truth of the gospel. It has to change the way we do things. It has to change the conversations that we have, the priorities we have, the things that matter to us. If you proclaim to be a Christ follower in this room and the conversations around your table could be uh, exactly replicated by someone that is far from Christ, then there's something wrong with that. If you could sit there and say, wow, we spent an awful lot of time talking about our fiscal stability and our future. Well, anybody apart from Christ could have that same conversation. What is your conversation that makes it inherently Christian? And if it doesn't, then be wrecked by that. If you proclaim to be Christ, follower, sorry. If you proclaim to be Christ, that's another conversation. (laughs) If you proclaim to be a Christ follower, it should be different. And if you don't, that's okay, that's fine. But I'm just saying to the Christ followers in the room, if the things that, that matter to you are the same things that matter to someone that doesn't profess Christ, that should wreck you a little. What is Jesus asking me to do in light of the grace he awards me? Maybe for some of you this morning, he's asking you to surrender your life. You've lived your life with yourself being the Lord and leader and trying to navigate what really matters and it's hopeless. So if you're in the room today and you say, I think my response to that application is to lay my life down, to allow Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life and to truly direct every aspect of my life. I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you come up. It's a decision you can make in your seat. It's as simple as you just praying a prayer saying, God, I'm a sinner, but I know you died for my sins. You took my place so I can experience freedom. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. If that's a decision that that you want help making or understand better, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And there's next steps associated with that so we can help come alongside you as you navigate that journey because it's not a get out of hell free card. I grew up thinking like, I'm just going to pray that prayer. Why? In case I die, I don't want to go to hell. And I didn't live in the fullness of what it is that God actually had for me. Instead, I just tried to avoid hell through praying that prayer all the time. I didn't understand the depth of the theological truth of allowing the gospel to inform every aspect of my life. And so we want to walk with you. We want to walk with you in that journey. For others of you in the room that say, listen, Jesus is the Lord and leader of my life. I know it. Then I want to challenge you. Is it to look with a new lens on the decisions that you make, on the way your relationships function, At some point, did Christianity become more about you and your stability in one section of a really well-rounded life instead of an outflow of living missionally informed by the truth of the gospel? I don't know what your application is this morning, but I know the text requires something from every single one of us. And like I said before, if you're sitting there and saying, no, I got it. I'm a Christ follower. I I have the gospel inform my every decision every day. I'm good you're missing it. 
Because to declare that I am good is to not understand the depravity of human nature. You never get to a place where the word of God no longer has application in your life. So what is the application for you this morning? I'm not sure. But I know corporately, we want to have an application that links our hearts together, that allows us to recenter our heart and mind. So I'm going to ask the, the worship team if they would come back up. We're going to go into response to the word that we've heard, but the way we're going to start it off is by having an opportunity to partake of communion together. And so the way we're going to do that, I'm going to talk uh, logistically just for a moment, and then I'm going to ask uh, Eric to come up and lead us in that communion. But as you kind of prepare your hearts and minds, one of the things that uh, I'm going to ask that we do is we'll move row by row uh, to your right out the aisleway over to the table. And if you feel... Um, compelled to partake in communion with us, uh, then you can take one of those cups. You'll just grab one of the cups. In the bottom is the, uh, is the bread, and, uh, and the top is the juice. And so it's all one unit. So you're just going to go there and then cycle back to your seat. If you don't want to partake communion, you can walk right past the table so that way you're not just like sitting all alone in the seat and being like, everybody knows I'm not taking it. <laughs> it's a safe place anyway, so we wouldn't care. But um, if you feel uncomfortable, you can go up there and just walk right past it, or you can remain seated. That's fine too. Um, but I want us to... Uh, prepare our hearts and um, allow what's been preached to um, impact the depths of our heart and mind this morning. And so if you would, just bow your heads for a moment and close your eyes if you'd like, or you can leave them open, but allow the the Lord to begin to um, reveal what it is that, that he would have you focus on. Maybe there's areas of your life that you need to repent of so that you can partake communion in a worthy fashion. So with our heads bowed and and our eyes closed, let's consider the implications of the truth of the gospel in our lives.